morning, everybody. Great to, great to have you with us today. Hey, I want to lead with a question um, here, and I'll give you the question in a second, but let me set up the question. Uh, I've heard it said that every kid, when they're little, little enough anyway, every kid thinks that they can dance, and every kid thinks that they can draw. I've heard that said. Every little kid, if you, if you get them together, they think they can dance, and they think you can draw. Well, let me ask you that question. How many of you think boldly, I can dance and I can draw? Got one. We, had, um, we have one here. We had three in, at 9 o'clock. Um, you know, it's one of those questions. What happened to us? You know, what happened to us that at some point in our life, most of us would have said, of course I can dance. Watch me move when you turn on music. And most would say, of course I can draw. Give me a crayon. You know, what happens to us? Whether it's that or other things that makes us say, not so sure. What do you mean by dancing? How do you define that and, and all that? Um, let's just zero in on the dancing part. Uh, if you're no longer confident in your dancing skills, it probably has something to do with something that happened along the way. And perhaps it was just an observation on your part. Depending on your generation, maybe you saw Fred Astaire or Elvis Presley or James Brown or John Travolta or Kevin Bacon. Now we're getting to my formative years. Or Michael Jackson or MC Hammer or Usher or their female counterparts. And you thought to yourself, I can't dance like that. Or maybe you went to your first junior high dance and you got out and you busted your move and people looked at you like, that's what you got. Wow. Something usually happens to us where we get more hesitant. And, and, and this something, it, it, it's true of so many areas of, of our life. Where when we subject ourselves to possible rejection or possible ridicule, when we take that risk, and we touch that hot stove and we get burned, we're, we're more hesitant, right, over time to put ourselves out there. And, and, and whether it's dancing, whether it's drawing... Um, there's other things too. You know, we don't ask out that person that might say no because we're afraid. We, we don't try out for the team that we might not make because we're afraid. We don't enter the contest that we might not win because we're afraid. And for many believers, we're hesitant to share our faith. We're hesitant to share our faith because we're afraid. And, and that's what we want to focus on today. We're, going to, we're starting today a brand new series. And we're just going to take one day on this subtopic of it. But it's an important day and it's an important subtopic. This idea of being resistant and hesitant to share our faith. You know, in some places around the world, it's, it's really obvious why people are hesitant. Because if you share your faith, you could be killed. You could be imprisoned. There are places where if you come out publicly for Jesus Christ, your family will reject you on the spot. There are some places around the world where it's that black and white. And, and in America, it's, it's surprising. Um, generally, we won't be thrown in jail or, or killed, um, at least in most parts of, of the country. But, um, but most of us learned very early on, cool kids don't want to hear about Jesus. At least if Jesus is going to make exclusive claims on their life. They don't want to hear. And most of us have, have touched that stove, and we've been burned, and, and, and we don't like it. And it's ironic, isn't it? It's ironic. And I, I say this fairly frequently, not always in these words, but I, I find that ironic in our country, our country that prides itself on, on tolerance, that, that in our country, sound doctrine is the new heresy. Isn't that ironic? And, and I find it ironic that in a country that, 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 that preaches tolerance, those who preach tolerance 
the loudest, are often the most intolerant of people who aren't tolerant of the things that they're tolerant of. You know, and, and so we live in this crazy country, and if you're, if you're not a Christian, you may wonder, well, why do you even do it then? If, if you're a Christian and you know that most folks don't seem to want to hear you, why don't you just keep it to yourself? Why don't you, you keep it in the realm of, of private? Why would you risk the ridicule? Why would you rege- risk the rejection that is almost guaranteed if you bring your faith into the public sphere? Well, I'm not going to claim to speak for everyone who's a Christian. I, I can't do that. But I'll speak for myself. And, and I'd like to show you a passage out of Scripture that sums it up well. Why, for me, I, this is something I feel it's important for me to do. This is, comes from the book of Acts. It's called in the Bible, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Acts 4. We're going to spend almost all of our time today in, in the first four chapters of Acts, and we're going to start with this verse and actually work backwards um, today. Here's the verse, and I also want to mention, it, as for those of you who are opening up um, your Bibles, I want to mention we keep a stack of, uh, of Bibles in the back of the room, and, and if, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free. So please take one. It's a, a gift to you. You don't have to tell us. You don't have to sign anything or anything like that. All right, here's what it says in Acts 4.12. And this is a good summary of why, for me anyway, it's important, I believe, important for us to find ways to respectfully and and with tact share our faith. It says this, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men and women by which we must be saved. for, For me, that's why I'm compelled to share because if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, then we have a very important message we, we, to share. And, and I liken it to an event that happened um, that was very, uh, very formative in, in, in my life. I was, uh, I was in college at the time. And those of us who live in outstate, we call this area the cities. Okay? So I was, I, was, I was home visiting my parents in, uh, in Hastings, and I was coming back to the cities to go back to school. And coincidentally, that particular day, my sister Kim... Um, she said, well, could you bring my friend back who happens to be a paramedic? Uh, could you bring him back? And it was the only time I ever gave this paramedic guy a, a ride. And I said, sure, I could bring him up. Well, me and paramedic guy are, are coming up uh, on 35, and we made the cloverleaf from 35E to 36. And he goes, cold blue, cold blue. And I'm like, I don't know what a cold blue is, and, and, but, but I knew it was important. And he points over, and there was a car crash. And there was, the reason I didn't see it was because uh, there weren't any emergency vehicles. In fact, no one had stopped yet. It, it was a bad one, too. It was, uh, it was car meets semi. So it was, it was a bad crash. And back in those days, we don't have cell phones. So you don't know how long it's going to be before an emergency vehicle comes by. So, so what do you do when you're in a car and you see a car crash and you've got paramedic guy with you? What do you do? You stop, right? There was someone trapped in that car, and, and that somebody needed saving. And what do you do when you have the potential to possibly save them? You, you stop. And you stop even though there was risk. It was night. It was at that, that interchange of that, that cloverleaf. Traffic is flying by. You know, there's nobody there stopping traffic. There was, there was a fire that had started in the car. But what do you do? You got to try. You got to try to do something. And, and, and we tried, and we, we helped, but the, the, the man ended up dying on the way to the hospital. But, but I look back on that event, and, and, and I feel as though we did the right thing by stopping, by at least trying to offer help in a situation where someone needed help. Now, are there differences between that and sharing our faith? Of course there are. Any analogy breaks down, right? But there's some similarities, too. 
There are some similarities. At least I would present to you that there are some similarities there. If I believe the Bible is true, which I do, and someone's salvation may be linked to a conversation that we can have with them, do we have a sense of responsibility to at least try, as the Spirit leads, to share our faith? Even in the face of risk, even in the face of rejection, I would, I would say the answer to that is yes. Now, it's interesting that, that the passage I pointed you to originally, Acts 12, or Acts 4.12, there was a high risk factor surrounding this passage. Let's take a look at that a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of the context here, and then we'll look at some of the actual, um, the actual context as we, as we open up. Uh, this passage follows the life and death of Jesus Christ. So this comes after that, but not too far after that. The people who had witnessed those things were still alive. And one of the people who had witnessed these things was a person whose words we just read, a man named Peter. He was, a, he was the Peter, if you're familiar a little bit with the stories from the Bible. Um, it's the Peter. He was a real person. He, he was a disciple of Jesus. He interacted with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He lived with Jesus for these, these three years. So he, he understood Jesus. Um, so this is the Peter. Well, after Jesus died, after Jesus rose again, there's an account that happens in the book of Acts where Peter and another disciple named John, they pass this guy, and in Jesus' name, they heal this guy. And that causes, as you can imagine, quite a stir. And so Peter, what, we, what we're reading from here is the equivalent of a, of a first century court transcript because they're on trial for this. It created this big buzz, and, and, and then they're on trial for healing this guy. Well, let me show you something. This is, I find this very interesting. If you have your Bibles, let's, let's back up a little bit. This is, let's, let's read verses 5, 6, and 7. It says this. When they had set, now this is they brought them on trial, Peter and John, they, and, and that's the they. When they had set them in the midst, amongst all these powerful people, they inquired, oh, wait a minute, i got to start with verse 5. On the next day, there we go, the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribe, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And they, when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Now, I, I wanted to start there because these names, for those of you who are familiar with the accounts of Jesus' life, these were people that had Jesus put to death not too long before this. These are, these are the same people. So Peter is in a situation of extremely high risk because at least from earthly standards, I say the wrong thing to these people, then what happens to me is going to be what happened to Jesus. Does that make sense? This is extremely high risk, at, at least by human standards. Extremely high risk. This is life and death. You say the wrong thing to these people, you die. So high risk, high risk, high risk. Peter knows these answers could literally be life or death. Okay, let's keep reading verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, remember that because it's so important, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man had been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So, you, you look at this response. What a powerful one. What a significant one that, that they make. Now, let's continue to, to press on here because uh, this, is, this is big stuff. Let's go with uh, verses 13 through 20. So, now the people, they, they see the boldness here. They see the boldness of Peter and John. And they perceived that they're uneducated common men. And they're astonished. And they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. But seeing the man that was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave, they basically put Peter and John out of the courtroom. When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what are we going to do with these guys? For that a notable sign has been performed through them, it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny that. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in. They charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, and look at these words. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, there's all kinds of directions we could go with this, but let me just make a couple observations. One of them, for me, it's interesting to note that they're brought before religious people here. These are the people that are supposed to be speaking on behalf of God. And it's interesting to note that these people thought the right thing to do is to silence them. But it's also interesting to note that these people who claim to speak for God, when push came to shove, they were more afraid of the people than they were of doing the right thing. Because they thought the right thing is to silence these people. This is what God would want. But they were afraid of the culture, even though they were the religious people. And then you got Peter and John, who have this boldness that says, even if... It's going to cost me my life. I, I have to speak of this. this. We saw this. We heard this. This happened. We cannot but not share this. So you've got Peter and John. They were in a threatening situation, but they ended up escaping this threatening situation. They were sent out. They were warned strongly, don't do this again. But they were able to escape. And what did they do? They gathered with their friends and they prayed. They gathered with their friends and they prayed. And here's an excerpt from the prayer. We have the prayer recorded. In, um, in, in the scriptures. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants safe passage to some place where we'll be able to share without anyone threatening us again. Is that what it says? Nope. It says, now look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. With all boldness. Did they have any plans to keep their beliefs to themselves? not even in the face of persecution. Now, were they wise at who they shared with? Yep. Did they go back and just try to be foolishly um, confrontational with, with the people that had cast them out of the court? No. But, but, they, but, but they shared, and they, and they actually prayed for boldness. They felt compelled to speak of what they'd seen and heard. And, and I find it, again, interesting, not just interesting, I find it helpful to know that they prayed for God's help, that they didn't just try to internally muster up some courage they prayed for God to give them the right kind of boldness. That in English word that appears in our Bibles, at least most of our Bibles, it's a translation of the Greek word that you see on the screen there. And I, I listed a couple other places where that same word is used. And in each of those instances, the, the context there is a spirit-infused boldness. It's not just a courage that you try to muster up on your own. It's something that comes from the Spirit of God that is given to people 
when they're put in these situations to be able to have that boldness. You know, and I, which causes me to wonder, you know, how what would be different if we prayed for that? You know, if we as believers would pray like they do for for boldness. Now, I, I when was the last time I did it this week? But I before that, <laughs> when was the last time I sat down and really prayed for a spirit inspired boldness? I don't remember. What if we did that? And and the reason I pose that question, what if we did that, is because it's so important that we do. Uh, inside, if you're new, inside um, your notes, inside your bulletins each week, we try to put a little sheet where you can take some notes. And, and I'd encourage you to write this down. This is so important. Christians, we've been entrusted with good news of utmost importance. Please take a moment to write that down. Christians have been entrusted with good news of utmost importance. You know, Peter had been convinced that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Peter had been convinced that Jesus wasn't just another person. Why? He saw Jesus die. He saw it. And then he saw Jesus rose, had risen again. And then, even beyond that, he experienced something remarkable. Jesus had promised, you're going to be filled with this Holy Spirit. And they got filled with this Holy Spirit. And now, no longer, it was just this external thing where here are these external teachings that we're trying to understand. The Holy Spirit began to open their minds to the things of God. And it wasn't just, we're trying to imitate Jesus' behaviors. It, the very Spirit of Christ began to fill them. And they'd be able to do things like heal a guy that they never could have done without it. Peter, he could not but testify to these things that he saw, that he heard, that were happening inside of him. He had good news of utmost importance because this didn't just have benefit in this life, but Peter began to realize this is the key to the life to come. This is the key to getting reconciled with God. This is the key to eternal life is faith in this name, the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Acts 4.12. He became convinced of this. There's salvation in no one else. No one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's convinced of that. Well, that brings me to these objects I have in front of me. I want to I point out how different life can bring forth different life. And certain life can only bring forth certain life. And, and other life can bring forth a higher quality of life. And Jesus, when we get to the cross there at the end of this continuum, it's a, it's a different. This isn't just apples to apples. This is fig newtons to fish to an axe to a cross. Now let, let me work with, start with the figs. Um, Peter, it, it, when Peter went about his life, he encountered all kinds of different life forms. One of them was figs. They didn't take the form of fig newtons, but, you know, I do the best I can on, when I come up with ideas. So, so pretend these fig newtons represent figs that, that Peter interacted with, right? He, he interacted with, he probably ate figs. We, we see some lessons that Jesus taught on, on a fig tree. Well, figs have a very limited life. As is true of all living things, figs do have a certain power to act and respond. A live fig is different than a dead fig, okay? But it's not that high form of a life. The, the, a fig's power to act and respond and influence us is very limited. A fig's life is regulated to the realm of soil, sun, and rain. Even in life, figs are dead to realm of, of conscious interaction that we find in higher life forms, like fish, represented by our Swedish fish. 
Fish are, are, are a higher form of life than figs. And for Peter, they, they brought a different kind of life because Peter's occupation was a fisherman. So not only could fish provide some substance to eat, fish also could provide an income for him, right? So it's a little bit of a higher life. He could get a different form of life from fish, but they were still fish. They didn't teach him things about ethics. They didn't give him a higher purpose in life. They're just fish. What does this have to do with anything? I hope you're asking that question, unless you read some Dallas Willard, because that's where I'm getting. He didn't have Fig Newtons and Swedish fish. But anyway, here's the deal. Um, when, when, when sin entered the world, when sin en- before sin entered the world, before sin entered the world, there was this relationship that humanity had with God that we read of in the, in the opening chapter of Genesis. It was, it was a situation where it's, they described it as walking with God. And something happened when sin came in, that something was we became dead to the Spirit of God in a whole new way. And Fig Newtons aren't going to fix that life. They're not going to be able to restore what was broken. And Swedish fish aren't going to be able to, or any kind of fish, isn't going to be able to restore what was broken. But what about a life? What about a life well-lived? Couldn't that restore what's broken? Couldn't we find salvation in the name of somebody who could teach us about God? And that's why what I have here is this next object is, this is representative of a, of a man that history refers to as John the Baptist. Because this represents how he was executed. How was he, ex- how was he executed? He was beheaded. And so I think about John the Baptist, obviously very different life than these other lives, qualitatively different than these other lives. Because John the Baptist, he taught about God. He understood things about God. He lived an inspirational life. In fact, the parallels between John the Baptist and Jesus are striking. Let's play a little game. Here's the game. It's called John Jesus, or both. Real simple game. All you need to do is I'm going to read the statement, and then you say out loud if you think it was true of John or Jesus or both. Ready? Okay, first statement. His ministry was foretold in the scriptures. John, Jesus, or both? You're right. His conception was miraculous. You're right. At least one angelic visit preceded his birth. Yep. People prophesied about him after he was born. Both. He pointed people to an authentic relationship with God. All right, we got another slide. So far, so good. He was unjustly imprisoned. True. A powerful man who could have set him free, considered him righteous, but failed to release him. Both. The wife of the powerful man was involved. Both. He was executed. Both. And followers took the body and laid it in a tomb. Both. So... If these things are true of both Jesus and John, why is it that Peter, who knew John, interacted with John, why is it that Peter didn't say, when he's on trial, in what name did you do this? In the name of Almighty God. In the name of all these great men and women who have testified to them. In the name of Moses. In the name of Deborah. In the name of Noah. In the name of David. And in the name of Jesus. He didn't do that. Because Jesus was qualified qualitatively different. There was a life that was in Jesus that went beyond the life that was in John. As great as John was, as inspirational as John was, there were things that were true about Jesus that were qualitatively different than simply great teaching or an inspiring example 
or, or this concept of a suffering servant. There was so much more than that. We've been reading in Acts 4. Look what it records here in Acts chapter 1. This is, this is the reference point of, of, this, of Peter that isn't true of John. You know, it says Jesus presented himself alive. This comes after Jesus had been killed. He presents himself alive to them. Peter, John, others. He presented himself alive. He had been killed. He's now alive after his suffering by many proofs. He appeared to them during 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, and, and what Peter had experienced in Jesus was so different than John. Was John a great teacher? Yes. Did John call people to repentance? Yes. But did John walk on water? No. When John was beheaded, did he appear resurrected? No. And John baptized with water. But Peter had experienced this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which just rocked his world. He had insights that he never had before. He had power that he never had before. They saw things that they had never seen happening through them. It was powerful. There was something very different. So let's go back to our game. And as people have looked back, these are all first century observations about possibly John, Jesus, or both. Let's take a look and see how John and Jesus compare on some of these observations that people make. So, same game. Tell me if you think it's John, Jesus, or both. Of whom is it said that he was the lamb without blemish, the perfect sacrifice? Which one? Jesus. Of whom was it said he was the victor over sin and death, who leads a triumphal procession over the powers of evil? Mm -hmm. Who is the one that took the prisoner's place? Jesus. Who is the one who redeems God's own? Who is the one whose life was purchased? Let me try this again. Who is the one whose life purchased us at a great price? Next slide. So far, you guys are doing really well at this. All right. Of who is it said? The one, he's the one who paid our debts. Who's the one mediator between God and humankind? Who is the new Adam? Who's the Messiah? Who's the son of David? Who is greater than Moses? We got another slide. Who referred to himself as the bread of life? Who referred to himself as the light of the world? Who referred to himself as the door of the sheep? Who referred to himself as the good shepherd? Who referred to himself as the resurrection and the life? Who referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life? Who referred to himself as the true vine? Were there some differences between Jesus and John? In fact, it's interesting. I don't have this on a slide. But John said of Jesus... I must decrease. He must increase. As believers, we believe that salvation is found in no one else. There is no person, there is no ritual, there is no worldview that can restore the relationship that humanity once had with God. None but Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus like this, if, if you, you, you're here and you're, you're exploring Christianity or you're here because you're dating someone who is into Christianity or whatever. If you're here, I'm so glad you are. And I would encourage you. I, 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 my invitation to you would be, hey, would, would you continue to, to journey with us through Lent? 
would you come and listen? Because what we're going to do for the next few weeks as we head between now and Easter is we're going to look at this life of Jesus. We're going to look at things that he taught. We're going to look at things that he did. We're going to look at things that as his spirit was poured out on his followers, they were able to do in his name. And that's what we're going to be doing between now and Easter. And we'd love for you to come and, and to learn more about, about this man and why we're so passionate about him. And in fact, I, I, there's a resource I've referenced before, but I want to make it available to you. If, um, if you have questions about Jesus, it's this book called Who Is This Man? We have, yep, we have some copies left there on the back table. If you have questions about Jesus, you're not sure about him, I'd encourage you to take a look at this because it does a good job of, in a condensed way, talking about a little of the impact that he's made on our world. This amazing impact. So if you are already a, a believer, hold off. If there's any copies after Easter, you can help yourself. But let's, between now and then, let's make those available for folks who, who maybe are ready to explore a little bit more about Christianity. So, so that's for those of you who, who, uh, who, who aren't ready to embrace Jesus in this way. But for those who are, let me close with a challenge for us. Okay? And this is, when I say us, I mean it's us. It's all of us. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's take a look. This is going to be familiar to those of you who, who read the Bible. It's quoted quite often. It says this. It says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And that power is to give you a bigger house and a nicer car, and, and it's going to bring you freedom from any kind of, of, of anxiety. It's going to bring you freedom from, from any kind of, of hardship in your life. Is that what it says? No. Can God do something? Yeah, he can do amazing things. And this isn't the limitation of the Holy Spirit, but look what it says in this passage about the Holy Spirit. It says, you receive power and you'll be my what? My witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. One of the reasons God sends his Holy Spirit is so that we can, with boldness, share these things that are true about Jesus, that aren't true about anybody else who's ever lived, unless the Spirit of Christ is alive in them. And as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, one of the things that will happen, you'll feel compelled to try to share in ways that are respectful and share in ways that are helpful and share your faith in ways that are tactful. You know, I look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he, he, he rather than saying, look at me, look at me, John the Baptist, when he had his disciples, there's an account that we read in the Scripture in the book of John, uh, uh, John is w- with his disciples. There's one of them named Andrew. And Jesus walks by and, and John says, look, the Lamb of God. And Andrew is interested in that, so he goes and follows Jesus, spends some, times with, some time with Jesus. And then, as a result of that, Andrew went and found his brother, whose name was Peter, the same Peter who we've been quoting. And here's what the Scripture says about that in that account from John chapter 1. Andrew found his brother Peter and said to him, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Are we bringing people to Jesus? And there's, there's a mystical way in which that happens. There's this mystical way in which some of you have had the extreme honor and privilege of, of being able to pray with somebody as for the first time they connect with Christ in a real way. That's, that's one of the ways we can bring people to Jesus. But my experience with, with, with people is generally they need to see Jesus before they're ready to, to really pray like that. And 
I believe this is so true. I believe that the body of Christ on earth now, it's us. It's the church. As individuals, we're a part of the body, right? We've just got done talking about this in the last series. We're, we're ears. We're, we're hands. We're feet. But when we come together, we're the what? We're the body. And there's things that others in the body that can do better than, than what we can do. And I, I believe this to be true with all my heart. All my heart. Um, can we put up that slide? This is the last thing I'd encourage you to write down here. Christ-like communities are the world's best apologetic. Apologetic is a, a word that talks about offering proofs for, for our faith, offering proofs for the existence of God, offering proofs that the Bible is true. Christ-like communities are the world's best apologetic. Because if people are to come and they experience something if, among us that, that, that can't be explained except because God is there, that is powerful. That's, I'm gonna argue, that's as powerful as somebody who was crippled being healed. It's that powerful. It's that transforming. When somebody comes in to a community and they're encouraged and they're loved and they're accepted and they look around and they say, as we point out frequently, are you kidding me? We've got Democrats and Republicans worshiping together. They're listening to one another. They're talking to one another. Are you kidding me? It's getting to the point where you don't see that anywhere else. And, and whether it's that or other things, people coming together across economic uh, right, right, uh, boundaries, across all kinds of different boundaries. They're coming together. They're united by Christ. And not only that, they're, it's as if something supernatural united them. Because they have these people that have all these different gifts. And all these different gifts come together and everybody contributes. And amazing things happen. The, the references I have there, I would encourage you to look those up. Because those are just little examples of, of what we're starting to happen. These Christ-like communities. Where people, as they're being brought to Jesus, one of the ways they're being brought to Jesus, because Jesus had gone, they were brought into these communities where they saw Jesus in the people. And between Acts 1 and Acts 4, not a whole lot of time passed, but between Acts 1 and Acts 4, the number of believers grew from 120 to conservative estimates put it at 10,000. God was at work in these Christ-like communities. And there was something really powerful about that. Something very, very powerful that they, that they experienced. So, here's my challenge. I'd encourage you to take your bulletin and rip off that back page where it talks about inviting people. And this is just for the believers, just for the believers. And, and I would encourage you to take that, and I'd rip that off and bring that home and put that someplace you're going to see it during Lent. Put it someplace you're going to see it. And what I did on mine is I wrote spirit-led boldness on there in red ink. And I'm going to try every time I see that to remind myself, okay, God, give me the right kind of boldness, not a confrontational kind of boldness, not a, not a manipulative boldness, not, not a boldness that comes from anything else other than you. Give me your boldness. And then, Lord, give me names of people I should be praying for that perhaps I could invite. And it was interesting, you know, there was two names of neighbors that popped into my head that I've been praying for on and off for a long time. But then there was these two names that popped in my head that I never would have thought of before that I'm going to be praying for and looking for God to provide an opportunity. Not forcing myself on there, but when God gives the opportunity to have that boldness to say, hey, would you be willing to come? And join me at church. Would you at least consider that? And pray and see what happens. This would not shock me at all. In fact, if this happens to you, please let me know. It would be really fun to, to, re, to be able to hear that. 
Try praying this consistently. Put it someplace you see every day. Pray it every day. And let me know if you don't have someone ask you, basically set it up, pitch you the softball. Sometimes that happens where you don't even have to really ask them. They ask you, so where do you go to church? Can I come with you? I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Had it happen. Coffee shops, other places. So consider that. Let me ask the worship band to come up and let's seal this time. Let's, let's ask for the Spirit of God to come and, and to fill us. And here's the other thing, too, I want to say. Just don't be only thinking about the invite end. Let's be Jesus. Let's be Jesus. Because this might be the week that somebody comes for the first time. Let's be welcoming. This might be the week that, 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 that someone's opening themselves up to the idea of exploring Christianity. Let's be Jesus. Let's be the welcoming people. Let's be the people that, that are really inviting them in. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have good news to share. Thank you that, that you're not calling us, you're not calling us to misery so that we can prove that we love you. Thank you that you brought good news. Good news that anything that we sacrifice doesn't even compare to what you have for us. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that dangerous prayer of boldness, that you would give us a spirit-inspired boldness. Help us to know when to say and what to say. Father, go before us. Lord, I pray for some people in this room right now. I pray for some of their faith to be strengthened as they trust you and as they pray this and as you open doors. I pray for their faith to grow in that. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us all to be your body, your hands and feet authentically. Help us to love like you love. Help us to, to speak truth when it needs to be spoken. Help us to be your people. And now, Father, as we prayed earlier in the service, we pray that you will inhabit these praises of your people. Lord, may these things that we proclaim not just be words into the air set to music. Lord, may these things we proclaim come true in our midst as we, as we lift up your name, as we proclaim the great things that you've done and can do. May these things become true of us and by others as they are invited into this. This is your time. Come. Lord Jesus, come Holy Spirit.